0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that. Opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised.
1: What motivates a mass killer? I'm Vinny Politan, and on this week's Court TV podcast, we're diving deeper into this question with an audio edition of Rampage Killers, a Court TV special. This original documentary explores why our understanding of the psyche of a rampage killer is vital in preventing the next mass murder via interviews with psychologists, investigators, survivors, and a convicted mass shooter. Have a listen.
0: This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
2: Hello, we're at Thelma Douglas High School and I think there's
0: a shooter. Inside the mind of a Rampage Killer.
3: My name's Nick and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018.
4: Do you think you're insane, Mr. Wallace? No.
5: I was to kill Hitler and six of the architects of the Holocaust. What motivates them to kill...
6: Really the search for motive is often very fruitless. Who in their right mind would do
7: this? There's no one way to say this person is or this person isn't going to become a mass shooter. A survivor.
3: Okay, you know, I've kind of said to myself, literally like, okay, God, like we don't talk much, but here we are. I want to see my babies again.
0: And a killer behind bars. You would have kept going.
8: It's likely I would. Because I had the means to.
3: this Vegas, somebody's shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Fest. I have no idea what's happening. We we'll just hear the gunshots. Okay. You can hear, okay, just stay like machine gun. Okay, okay.
9: Go stay close to the fence and go towards the church.
6: 720, if we need to evacuate, we evacuate the east side of the stage.
10: Oh. Ma'am, do you see anyone? What? Evac as many ambulatory as you can. Okay, stay back.
9: Okay, go, go, run. Hi, uh, we got active shooter over here at um, state of the Route 91.
3: See multiple flashes in the middle of Mandalay Bay on the north side. We're 59, it's coming from like the uh, 50 or 50th All of the men right it's coming out the
4: window. Fire and what is the address of the emergency? Hey, it's Metro, it's reference to shooting at Mandela Bay. Yes, ma'am. We have, multiple. Just advising there. there's multiple casualties.
3: Couch- ABC, marker. I'm Autumn Bignami and I am a survivor from the Route 91 concert in Las Vegas. I was shot in the face. Uh, entrance moon was here, exit moon was here. My birthday's in September, my husband's birthday's in October. So that festival right at the end of September, beginning of October was perfect for us because it fit for both of our birthdays. So it became our, a weekend getaway. Concert itself was awesome. The festival was very well done. We had a great time. Jason Aldean was actually the one, he's actually my husband's favorite. And so we were super excited to see him. <laughs> So we're just sort of watching and dancing. Um he's in the middle of a song and we hear these little like pop pop pop. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking some drunk idiot has fireworks like who brings firecrackers to a concert. <laughs> And it was on that second that I was hit. Um, I was shot in the face. I remember just hitting the ground.
5: Stand by.
9: Down, 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 down. There's rounds coming. There's rounds
3: taking. We hid behind a little barricade. And at this point is when he started actually doing the rapid fire. People realized what was going on. And we were walking, and um, I got hit in the back, and I fell forward. Go! Get her, go go
9: turn it go get. Take her over
4: there and
3: get oh. tied up. I remember seeing their red and blue lights. So it's where the first responders were staged, where the firemen, uh, paramedics were staged. So the truck slowed down, and they were able to get me um, loaded into an ambulance. About 22 minutes, basically, that entire process to get from the initial shot to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Seeing around was something out of an episode of MASH. You know, it was just people everywhere, bodies everywhere, chaos everywhere. My husband was like, We're not gonna die today. We're not gonna die today. We're not gonna die today.
7: I'm Aaron Rouse. I was the special agent in charge for the Las Vegas division of the FBI. We hope, very much so, to be able to provide concrete information to the public about why this happened, because that's what's on everyone's mind. The shooter checked into the Mandalay Bay on the 25th of September. The shooting took place on the 1st of October. Jason Aldean was on the stage performing. He was the the final act of the night to close the uh, concert down. At about 10.05 PM, shots started to fire from the Mandalay Bay onto the venue. Those shots would continue until about 10.16 PM. In the aftermath of that, a total of 60 people ultimately died and more than 850 were wounded. The emotional and psychological scars for just about everybody there, it's incalculable.
9: Stephen Paddock is a man who spent decades acquiring weapons and ammo. He meticulously planned on the worst domestic attack in United States history. 1120, the first breach was set off and officers entered the suspect's room. Breach. They observed the suspect down on the ground, and also saw a second door that could not be accessed from their position. So it's a suite, and we have there's you have a main area of the suite, which is a living room, uh, uh, kitchen, dinette area, and then on opposite ends of that is two bedrooms. At 11.27, the second breach was set off, allowing officers to access the second room.
5: Breach, breach,
9: breach. It's troublesome that this individual was able to move this amount of gear into a hotel room. It's troublesome for the amount of stuff he had at both residents. Um, so uh, there's people that know this individual. There's people that can help us understand this individual.
11: Who was Stephen Paddock?
7: a person that had a lot of stressors in his life. His father was a former FBI top 10 fugitive. And I think that growing up in a household that he did with the type of stressors that he did have, uh, that that did play a part in wanting to attain a certain amount of infamy. And so therefore he was going to go out on his terms, which involved killing these people and taking his own life.
11: The Las Vegas shooter um, was kind of an enigma. He did not leave us a manifesto which would let us know what his motivations were. But I think that may be part of the game he was playing because he knew we'd all be wondering. For the Vegas shooter, it
2: is. It's a little bit unclear what that final pathway was. What made him get to the point of thinking, I'm not just going to kill myself. I'm going to take as many people as I can with
6: me. A mass shooting is intended to be a final act. You don't get away with a shooting. The Las Vegas shooting appears almost to be experiential. The shooter is perpetrating that crime for the experience of perpetrating that crime. There were certainly things going on in that person's life that would make you believe that this was a way of going out with a bang.
3: So the fact that there was never really a why was difficult, I think, at first, because I think we crave the why in our brain. We have to know why because otherwise, what was the point? When the incident happened, I a kindergartner, a third grader, and seventh grade, my little kindergartner, she made a comment to me recently that she doesn't remember what I sounded like. Hi. Before. Um, so it's hard. You're never recovered, it's all just recovery, but. You know.
0: Coming up inside the mind of a school rampage killer.
3: My name is Nick, and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018.
0: What red flags were missed, and what can be done to prevent the next tragedy?
5: (laughs) I love you you too, bro.
3: shooting everyone in the cafeteria and then you can hear them laughing and running upstairs they're just little kids it's just hard
4: you just shouldn't be able to put your child in a classroom at the beginning of the day and never see them again because someone walked into that building with a gun and killed them
10: I mean, it was very scary, but, like, I was trying, like, we were trying not to panic. I was basically in the fetal position shaking because I was scared.
12: First responders to walk in, it's very devastating. As you kind of come down, as the scene kind of progresses, we're going to have some some firefighters, some first responders are going to be affected.
9: This is enough. This is enough. No one else needs to go through this. We never needed to go through this, but we (laughs) are.
6: If I say Parkland, Columbine, right? Sandy Hook. These are not nouns anymore. They've become verbs. This is a major, major problem, and it's taking a massive toll on the American people. There have been hundreds of school shootings in the U.S. in the past two decades, and they keep
1: happening. And the question is, how did we get here? But one thing we know is everything changed after Columbine.
11: That was the one that was really the touchstone for all the mass killers that would come after that. Columbine really changed the way we move through the world and the the sense of safety we had about our kids in school. We see these younger shooters, we see this slow build towards
2: violence. (laughs) Often, depressed, suicidal. And
11: then that sort of self-hate
2: turns outward. School shooters are
11: a subset of the public mass killers. They're usually insiders. They have either attended the school or they do attend the school now. Sometimes they've been expelled or gotten in trouble in school. And they don't always target specific people when they go back. In fact, usually they don't.
1: Very few school shooters make it out alive. That wasn't the case at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School when 14 students and three staff members were murdered on Valentine's Day in 2018.
10: And when you see me on the news, we'll all know
12: who
6: I am. <laughs> You're all going to die. Parkland is a case study in missed opportunities for intervention.
11: There were so many red flags for years and it just seemed like it was system failure after system failure after system failure.
1: The Parkland school shooter was raising red flags since he was in elementary school. He caught the attention of counselors, teachers and even neighbors because of his erratic behavior. That continued throughout his life.
11: You have someone posting online and telling friends, I am going to be a school shooter. Reports were made to the FBI and the ball was dropped. Multiple police reports from the kid's mother over the years about his out of control behavior.
6: People only ever had small pieces of the puzzle and they weren't able to put it all together to see the bigger picture. So law enforcement knew something family knew something, the school knew something, social media knew something.
11: He mutilated animals from a young age, he took dead animals to school, and of course his behavior was so inappropriate he had a cascade of social failures.
3: Uh, Here's a plan, I'm gonna go take an Uber. In the afternoon before 2.40. From there, I'll go into the onto school campus, walk up the stairs, load my bags, and get my art, and shoot people down at the main, was it, the main courtyard, await, and people will die. All the kids in school will in f- fear and hide. From the wrath of my power, they will know who I am. I am nothing, I am no one. My life is nothing and meaningless. Everything that I hold dear, I let go beyond your half. Every day I see the world ending another day. I live a lone life, live in seclusion and solitude. I hate everyone and everything. With the power of my AR, you will all know who I am. I had enough of being told what to do and when to do. I had enough of being telling me that I'm an idiot and a dumbass. But in real life, you're all the dumbass. You're all stupid and brainwashed by these political government programs. You will all see, you will all know who my name is.
13: Zach, have a seat.
2: There's this moment where they let his brother into the room.
8: (laughs) So... What do you think mom would think right now? She, if she would was, cry. She would cry. You, you, you're, people think you're a monster now. A
2: monster? It's this incredibly emotional scene. It's just not what you would ever picture of somebody who just perpetrated one of the worst school mass shootings in history.
8: Come on. What do you, why did do you do this? This is... Don't even laugh, dude, I'm sorry. All right, I know you you probably feel like you have nobody, but I I care about you. I literally would pour my heart out for you. I love you with all my heart. Like, I will tell you, I'm telling you right now, I love you. All right, I know what you did today. Other people look at me like I'm crazy for you, and I don't care what other people think, like, you're my brother. I, I love you. I, I want I want you to You can't Why how you Can I hug him? Yeah. Just want to hug? Hug?
3: Yeah, as yeah, as long as you're I baby. I love you.
4: Yeah, it's okay. I love you too, brother. I know what you've gone
3: through me.
4: That's okay.
2: Not that that excuses what he did or says he's not responsible what he did, but I think we have this image of what these monsters look like.
10: I am very sorry for what I did, and I have to live with it every day. And that if I were to get a second chance, I would do everything in my power to try to help others. And I am doing this for you, and I do not care if you do not believe me. And I love you, and I know you don't believe me,
2: but I have to live with this every day and brings me nightmares and I can't live with myself
11: sometimes. This is a kid, right? This is just a kid. How did he get here? He was not psychotic, he was not delusional, he was not hallucinating, but he definitely had psychopathic tendencies. If we ever have a case where we can look and say, what can we do different? Parkland is the case where we really need to take that apart piece by piece and say, this is one that was telegraphed here. We're getting in
4: the reception area. It's the seating area to the left of the receptionist's desk. We see a black duffel bag on the couch. We now see a small hallway, see a weapon on the floor. This hallway is known as the human resources department. Cheryl Troy's office was located in this hallway. We now see a glass brick wall separates the reception area from the conference room. And we look down and we see the body of Cheryl Troy located behind the receptionist's desk. In the distance, we see the body of Janice Hegarty.
13: I'm Stephen Doherty. I'm the retired chief of police in Wakefield, Massachusetts. People left that building like a snapshot in time. I was the chief when the Edgewater Technology shootings occurred in December of 2000. I looked at one desk. A woman was writing a personal check. It's still on her desk. It remains there, endorsed but unsigned.
9: Several individuals had barricaded themselves in an office. He reloaded the weapon several times, 37 rounds from fired from the uh, semi-automatic rifle, and numerous shotgun shells. Mr. McDermott blew the door off uh, and the door handle with the shotgun. He then went inside, and he shot. One individual, three times in the chest.
13: The call came in at 11.26 in the morning on December 26th. Saw people streaming out of the building, running. I mean,
1: running like it was. They were in fear, and they were. Seven people were killed at Edgewater Technology in Wakefield, Massachusetts. The shooter was an employee a data programmer named Michael McDermott. If you've seen any pictures uh, of Grizzly Adams,
13: that's pretty much what he looked like. A huge man, uh, full facial hair, uh, bushy on top, all all the way down here. I would say he was a scary-looking guy.
1: I was there in the courtroom for Court TV, and and I remember this case very well because not only was McDermott such an odd-looking character... He was really intelligent. He worked as an engineer on a nuclear submarine and worked at the main Yankee nuclear power plant in New England. You're in a nuclear
9: submarine? That's correct. Worked in the nuclear reactor or in the engine room?
13: In the engine room. This is a smart man. He's an engineer. He worked for the U.S. Navy. He was assigned to atomic submarines.
9: After you get out of the Navy, You went directly to Maine Yankee?
13: Uh, That same year, yes. This is not jobs you get on Indeed. These are jobs that come from a lifetime of growing experience.
9: Did you earn any patents or award any patents while you were at Duracell? Yes. And what were those patents for?
5: Um, I invented a, a device for the safety of lithium batteries. Michael McDermott also seemed mentally ill. He
1: attempted suicide twice and was hospitalized for depression, hallucinations, and hearing voices.
11: The thing with Michael McDermott that is relevant um, is that he had a documented 20-year history with medical records of schizophrenia.
1: Two weeks before the shooting, he was in a real downward spiral. His car was about to be repossessed. Then he was called into the HR department in Edgewater and told that the IRS was gonna be garnishing his wages. He was very, very upset at
13: having his wages garnished. And he was told by HR, we're gonna wait until after
1: the holidays in order to enforce this edict. On Christmas day, after spending the day with his family, he went to the office and planted the guns. All of the ammunition and stuff was piled up by
13: him for his arrival on December 26th.
1: Now it's the day after Christmas, and McDermott shows up at work, and everyone that was there says he was acting normal.
13: He came to work, interfaced with employees, did his, you know, did whatever it is he does. Then about 11, 15 or so in the morning, he went back to his office, took out the 12-gauge shotgun and the assault rifle, as well as a 32 caliber handgun, which was found in his pocket when we arrested him.
1: All seven people McDermott shot that day died. And unlike most workplace shootings where it seems random, in this case, it seems very targeted.
13: We began searching the building, and right nearby the two dead bodies was a very large individual. And the only thing I remember him saying is, I don't speak German.
1: I don't speak German? What does that mean? And it wasn't until two and a half years later that Michael McDermott told his side of the story. And boy, what a story. I do. On December
0: 14th of the year 2000, were you working at Edgewater? Yes, I was. Do you remember that day?
5: Oh, very well. How come? It was the worst and best day of my life. Why? Um, I had just been informed that um, the IRS was, was garnishing my wages It was, it was a terrible day for me. What happened? Um, I went, uh, afterwards I went back to my cubicle meltdown and prayed for help. What happened? (sighs) Michael the Archangel came and lifted me up. To where? A celestial plane. You
1: could hear a pin drop in that courtroom when McDermott was talking about communicating with St. Michael the archangel. What happened?
5: Um, he told me that God had a plan for me, and I said dumb things to him like, well, I don't believe in God, which was you know, patently stupid in front of an angel. But uh, he said it was okay. God believed in me. He uh, said God had a plan for me.
11: If people have come from religious families or if they attended church as children, it's very common to have um, the delusions and hallucinations be very centered around angels, the voice of God, Satan, demons. He had
5: said that I could, uh, with God's help, I could get a soul, but I I, I did not feel worthy. I had accumulated a lifetime of, of sins. I didn't feel worthy of receiving a soul.
11: I think in Michael McDermott's case, it's, it's interesting that he sort of blended the delusional material with the emotions that he had that were genuine about, I'm angry with this company, and I'm angry with the HR department. So
5: what was the solution? I have always assumed that, uh, that sins were more heavily weighed than good acts. I suggested I would have to save millions of lives just to to get back to zero, to start to get a soul. And he suggested that was possible. If I could do something like go back in time and prevent the Holocaust, I would save tens of millions of lives. Prevent the Holocaust? Yes.
13: He was hearing alleged to be hearing voices that he had to go kill Hitler's lieutenants, which were represented in his mind by the human resources department.
5: So what happened then? Um, He told me this was God's plan. I would be transported back in time 60 years to the year 1940 to a bunker in Berlin. And I was to kill Hitler and six of the architects, Nazis, of the Holocaust.
1: McDermott claimed he was instructed to kill six lieutenants and Hitler, but the jury didn't buy it. He was convicted, and when he was sentenced, the gallery broke out into applause as he was led out of that courtroom.
0: In prison, face to face with a mass shooter.
8: I've been praying for this for 25 years.
0: Still struggling with the devastating reality that he shot five people.
8: I don't think of myself as a rampage killer.
9: Wade Wallace, correct? What happened tonight? What, what brought all this on?
8: I'm telling you, there are evil, people. The At the bar? Oh, yeah. For the bartender, the manager, for the named
9: Mike, the manager named uh, Brian. They're all sitting there in the row. Were they all there? Yes, they're all
8: in the row. It's perfect, dude.
9: You weren't going to stop it. No, I was going the whole place. You were going to clean them out. Yes. They're
12: evil, dude. I'm Frank Labriola. I'm a survivor from the Key West shooting, 1997, at the Rum Runners bar in the hideaway. Jeffrey came into a bar that I was running and proceeded to kill one person and shoot four others. I was shot three times, spent over 30 days in the hospital, and took multiple years to recover.
10: Jeffrey Wallace was a part-time bouncer at a bar in Key West, Florida by the name of Rum Runners. On April 7th, 1997, he was off duty. He walked into the bar dressed in a suit that he had purchased a year before, just for this occasion, a pair of brand new shoes, and he was armed with a semi-automatic handgun. His intent when he walked into that bar was to kill as many people as he could.
12: The night was a regular night. My bar back, Josh, was there. He was with me i remember jeffrey coming up to the bar i remember him ordering his shots and complaining to me that i watered them down
4: was there anything unusual about that jägermeister how it appeared
8: yeah it looked strange it was like watered down something was wrong with it it wasn't like Jaegermeister was just thick
4: what did you think
8: they were drugging me i told frankie i said frankie uh i'm not I don't I'm changing my mind,
12: I don't want it after all. And I told him he had to leave, and that was my first interaction I ever had
8: with him. And he, he turns to me and Frankie says, I knew I didn't like you. And I was thinking, I just met the fellow. I just met him. How did he know he didn't like me? At
12: midnight, maybe 10 after, or Josh was behind the bar, I came back, I said, Josh, I don't need you. Frankie comes up, he's like, go do your rounds, which means I have to go run the bars. And after that, uh, five minutes later is when I started hearing what everybody thought was firecrackers, but it sounded like gunshots to me. Huh. Well, to me, it seems like minutes later, everything went down, including me.
10: Jeffrey Wallace shot five people, killing 32-year-old Michael Sumner, one of the Rum Runner's managers. And the only reason that he stopped shooting was an off-duty bouncer who was behind him was able to tackle him.
12: They already had to pick Frankie up from behind the bar, over the bar, because it was a little alleyway. You couldn't get him through. They picked him up and then they had to weave him through the bar. So I saw him going out on a stretcher. And he got into ER and they took one of the bullets out of my chest. And it went in a. they put in that little silver pin. And I will remember that sound of that bullet shell just going
10: tink, 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 tink. Jeffrey Wallace admitted to everything. But the story that he told investigators and would later tell jurors about why he did it was crazy.
9: I've been playing this for a long time,
1: for about a year. premeditated, dude. I went home, premeditated. Okay, so you were at the bar earlier? Yeah. They pissed you off, you
3: went home to yeah. get your gun? Yeah.
4: Premeditated. I don't care. Do you think you're insane, Mr. Wallace? No. <laughs> Are you happy that we're using the defense of insanity? No, I'm not. Because it discredits
8: everything I say, everybody. that listen to what I say. The people that don't know, that don't live here and know what's going on, will discredit everything I say.
10: Wallace's story was that Rum Runners, the bar was run by some Boston-based mafia and that the employees were engaged in prostitution and gambling and drug smuggling. They were devil worshipers and they were trying to manipulate him. So he had to fight back.
8: That's all the crime that was going on there. I didn't like it. They knew I didn't like it. And who was that? Satanic cult in Key West with ties to organized crime. I was afraid of these people. I know I was being followed, and they do it to intimidate me. They told me they were going to destroy me. I had a feeling they were going to kill me. They drive me to suicide.
12: He came up with some crazy, radical ideas to help defend his situation of what happened by saying we were satanic worshipers and devil worshipping was going on and you know when you hear that I just say
8: crazy
4: when you say you had to confront them what did you mean
8: I had to come back to room runners where it all started and confront them
4: were you planning on killing them
8: no I was not I never...
11: Until he became paranoid and had delusions and had the psychotic break, I think he was a very nice person. At
10: one point, he had a wife, two kids, and was pursuing a master's degree when mental illness started to creep into his life. He ended up getting divorced, was hospitalized on two separate occasions. Now, 25 years later, what does Jeffrey Wallace think about what he did? We went to visit him in prison to find out. Ted Rollins, nice to meet you, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Appreciate you doing this. I've been praying for this for 25 years. Oh. 25 years has been a long time. Yes, sir. Were there moments that you were going through this, leading up where you second-guessed yourself?
8: No. Not at the time. I was completely convinced, and I began to become suspicious of things and everybody, and trying to come up with a conspiratorial explanation for what I was going through. It was all irrational. It was all imaginary.
10: This is you. In your suit, walking away. When you when you look at that, yes, what do you see?
8: Despair, hopelessness, helplessness, just despair. It's hard to look at.
10: Jeffrey Wallace wasn't holding on to those same delusions that he had 25 years earlier when he committed these crimes. And one other thing that is very clear is if that bouncer hadn't stopped him. To this day, he believes that many more people would have died.
8: Thankfully, one of the bouncers was behind me in the dark and uh, knocked a gun out of my hand and um, and put an end to it.
10: You would have kept going.
8: It's likely I would, because I had the means to. And uh, I had 17 rounds in the Glock and two more police issued extended magazines on my belt. And
6: there were 51 rounds of hollow points, there's no telling. What could happen in the end? We talk about mass shooters having four things in common. Early childhood trauma that uh, is really unresolved and it lays a foundation for what comes next. Mass shooters also reach an identifiable crisis point in their life. There's a sense of hopelessness that gets to a point where somebody no longer cares if they live or die. It's a way of expressing your grievance with the world in a really public statement. Thirdly, these mass shooters study other mass shooters. They are trying to search for meaning in their lives. They're trying to search for understanding of the way that they feel about themselves. At the same time, they might be searching for meaning in the darkest corners of the internet and getting radicalized in uh, hate groups and chat rooms and other places. And then the fourth factor is that all these individuals, in the end, have to have access to a firearm.
10: You don't like that term killer, do you?
8: No, because I don't, I don't think that necessarily they start out to be killers. They don't totally understand that. tend to be killers.
10: But that's the end
8: game. That is the end result.
10: What could have stopped you?
8: Some really good intensive therapy, where someone would get to know me enough through the course of counseling.
10: People? tried to help out. You even had some uh, hospitalizations, two separate times. Why didn't it work to change the ultimate outcome? The only thing I think, practically
8: practically speaking, that they could have done was to somehow intercede in voluntary commitment of some kind for a time, some kind of treatment, then I think that sometimes that's necessary.
10: Who is the person like you that goes all the way?
8: Would be a person who just completely life, his life is completely turned upside down.
6: The way he was able to articulate that hopelessness and despair, he recognized as well intellectually, he knew that something was going wrong. He knew he was in crisis, but he couldn't take the next step to do something about it.
8: You leave your chosen profession, leave your career, your marriage falls apart, you uh, start isolating yourself, you're suspicious, uh, anxious,
6: fearful. You just can't see a way out. And yet somehow the mass shooting is the way out for these individuals. They feel like that's the solution, that's the answer to their problems.
11: A mass killing is always the end point to a long pathway. We want to intervene as early on the pathway as we can. We can certainly predict that mass killings are going to continue happening unless we start doing something different.
6: You need the individuals who are willing to reach out. You need the systems that are then functioning within our institutions to ensure that somebody can get the help and treatment that they need. And then you also need to ensure that those people who are on the verge of perpetrating a mass shooting aren't then so easily able to get access to a deadly weapon.
13: Sadly, because there are critical incidents being reported across the country every day, it's like it's, it's ongoing, it's like it hasn't really stopped. It pauses for a while and then for some reasons the, the violence escalates
3: as a society we have become numb to it or you know, a school shooting happens and we're shocked by it, but we're not surprised by it. And that's very disturbing. And once you've experienced the actual violence yourself, it changes how you look at that forever. I don't know that I'll ever be recovered. It's not there is no recovery for me. This is this is still daily. For me, the ability as a victim, someone who has been shot to hear someone say like oh this happened it it really does affect me on multiple levels the most recent shooting was so difficult i said it's my it's my mom heart it's my teacher heart it's my victim heart
7: at the end of the day unfortunately there's no one way to say this person is or this person isn't going to become a mass shooter we have to continue to work together we have to continue to have conversations, difficult conversations, about addressing mental illness, about addressing violence, to ensure that we as communities and as a nation can work together to defuse the next mass shooter before they strike.
1: you have it. If you want to see more Court TV originals, they're available to stream for free on our website. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, you can see me every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern on my show, Closing Arguments with Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids.
0: This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.